Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 36, Leviticus chapter 24. We left off with Leviticus chapter 23 last time, and so we're now entering Leviticus chapter 24. And Leviticus chapter 24 presents us with a kind of diverse collection of ordinances and rules about various subjects. And the first few verses deal with matters concerning the sanctuary of Jehovah. That is, for this era of Leviticus, that mobile tent called the Wilderness Tabernacle. And later on, it'll be the temple in Jerusalem. The last part of Leviticus 24 deals primarily with a crime of a very serious nature, blasphemy, and secondarily about justice in general. Now, much of what we we will read, we've heard before. In some cases, the information is generally repetitive. In other cases, it adds additional information that's important. Now, the sages and the rabbis struggled with this section of Leviticus. And I'm going to show you the area of disagreement and concern when we get to it. So, pick up your Bibles and open them to Leviticus chapter 24. We're going to read the whole chapter once it's not too long. Adonai said to Moses, Order the people of Israel to bring you pure olive from crushed olives for the light, to keep lamps burning always. Outside the curtain of the testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron is to arrange for the light to be kept burning always from evening until morning before Adonai. This is to be a permanent regulation throughout all your generations. He is to keep in order the lamps on the pure menorah before Adonai. You are to take fine flour and use it to bake twelve loaves, one gallon per loaf. Arrange them in two rows, six in a row, on the pure table before Adonai. Put frankincense with each row to be an offering made by fire to Adonai in place of the bread and as a reminder of it. Regularly, every Shabbat, he is to arrange them before Adonai. They are from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. They will belong to Aaron and his sons, there to eat them in a holy place, because for them, for him they are, of the offerings of Adonai made by fire, especially holy. This is a permanent law. There was a man who was the son of a woman of Israel, and an Egyptian father. And he went out among the people of Israel, and this son of a woman of Israel had a fight in the camp with a man of Israel. In the course of which... The son of the woman of Israel uttered the name in a curse. So they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shlomit, the daughter of Debri of the tribe of Dan. They put him under guard until Adonai would tell them what to do. Adonai said to Moses, take the man who cursed outside the camp, have everyone who heard him lay their hands on his head, and have the entire community stone him. Then tell the people of Israel, whoever curses his God will bear the consequences of his sin, and whoever blasphemes the name of Adonai must be put to death. The entire community must stone him. The foreigner as well as the citizen is to be put to death if he blasphemes the name. 
Anyone who strikes another person and kills him must be put to death. Anyone who strikes an animal and kills it is to make restitution, life for life. If someone injures his neighbor, what he did is to be done to him, break for break, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has caused the other person is to be rendered to him in return. He who kills an animal is to make restitution, but he who kills another person is to be put to death. You are to apply the same standard of judgment to the foreigner as to the citizen, because I am Adonai your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel. They took the man who had cursed outside of the camp and stoned him to death. Thus the people of Israel did as Adonai had ordered Moses. Now just to remind us, verse 1 tells us that what we're reading is what Jehovah communicated to Moses. And also, just to remind us, almost to a fault, we can replace every instance of the word Lord, when it's referring to the divine, and every instance of the word God in our Bibles, and as we're reading the complete Jewish Bible, the word Adonai, with the word Yehovah. Okay, the name of God. Why can we rightly do this? Because we're simply restoring the original by that substitution. Okay, I don't mean to drive this subject into the ground, but I keep finding more reasons day by day as to why it's important to restore God's name to our scriptures. And 99% of the time, literally, Literally, 99% of the time that we see the words Lord or God in our Bibles, in the Old Testament, the original Hebrew was yud heh vav heh Yehovah. This isn't conjecture. This isn't reverse engineering. Okay? This is just fact. We, we have today not only the Masoretic texts in Hebrew that date back to the late 800s A.D. We now have the Dead Sea Scrolls that have most of the Old Testament books among them for comparison. And they date to at least the time of the birth of Christ and probably a little bit earlier. And in all cases, it is very rare that we find the Hebrew terms used for God or Lord in reference to Jehovah. Rather, we find his personal name is used more than 6,000 times. Just as it's used here to start off Leviticus 24. Jehovah instructs the Israelites that they're to use clear, pure olive oil for fueling the menorah. That large golden lampstand that resides in the holy place of the sanctuary. Now I'm going to show you some things that I think are very significant but are often lost in translation. I want to first remind you of a key verse in the New Testament that correlates the Torah with the Messiah. Jesus, Yeshua, says this in John 5:46. For if you believed Moses, you'd believe me, because he wrote of me. But if you don't believe his writings, how are you going to believe my words? 
Do you understand what a powerful statement that is? Do you detect in that, hey everybody, I've abolished the Torah. Where do we get that? So much of the Torah sets up patterns and types and shadows that describe the coming and the purpose of the Messiah. And here, hidden in the second verse of Leviticus 24, is a little tiny piece to that puzzle. We know that the menorah is associated with the Messiah as he is the light of the world. It's where they get the analogy from. And the book of Revelation in particular directly makes that connection for us. We don't have to guess about it. Well, the menorah requires something to be burned as fuel to provide its light. And that something is described as pure olive oil. Other things were available at that time and regularly used to burn and thus create light. Animal fat, dried animal dung, oil from sea creatures, wax, even petroleum that bubbled up naturally through small fissures in the earth. But Yehovah required that only olive oil be used in the menorah. Now we find all through the Bible that a connection is made between the olive tree and Israel. Eventually the olive tree comes to symbolize Israel in the scriptures. Now there were many ways to process olives to extract the oil. Usually they were pressed, they were smashed and smushed all right, to squeeze that oil out. But here in Leviticus we have an unusual Hebrew word that's used to describe the required process to obtain that olive oil fuel when it's to be used with the menorah. The Hebrew verb is katit, katit, and it means beaten. The olives had to be beaten, they had to be hit, they had to be struck. They could not be pressed to take the oil out. I'm sure the Hebrews had little clue as to why that was necessary. In fact, Rashi has commented on the use of this word katith and was himself at kind of a loss to explain why the olives specifically used to make olive oil for the menorah were to be beaten. didn't make any sense to him. Okay. It was much quicker and easier to simply crush the olives with a mortar and a pestle, the, the, the standard way, and later on a great big olive press. But we have, with hindsight, the ability to understand now that Yeshua, the Messiah, would be beaten. He would be hit. He would be struck. Yet Messiah would not be crushed. His bones would not be broken. He would not be pressed and pulverized. This olive oil process of the olive being beaten rather than crushed and pressed for use in the menorah sets up a type and a pattern for the Messiah. Now let's also take a moment to clear something up. Only rarely do English translations directly bring across the Hebrew word 
menorah. Okay. Usually it's translated as lampstand or golden lampstand. Now understand, when you see the word lampstand or golden lampstand used, and this includes the New Testament, it's simply referring to the temple menorah. Recall this well-known saying of Jesus in Revelation, Revelation 2.5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you. I will remove your lampstand, your menorah, out of its place, unless you repent. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, the word lampstand has correctly been replaced with the word menorah. The importance is that analogies of the works of Messiah are directly tied to sacred and holy things like the temple menorah. And this is so we can see that connection. Now, the olive tree is the symbol of Israel. And the purest olive oil represents Yeshua, the purest Israelite. Yeshua embodied the heavenly ideal of Israel. What Paul, for lack of words, called true Israel. True Israel is this spiritual counterpart of the earthly and physical nation of Israel. Our reality of duality at play. And it is Yeshua that is the purest fuel that provides for the purest light for a dark world. We, as his disciples, are to emulate him. We are to be pure and clean fuel for that light as well. Now, we'll never attain in these bodies, obviously, the same purity as our Savior. But we are to strive for purity. And in a few minutes, I'm going to show you another place where the ministry of Messiah is woven right into this 24th chapter of Leviticus. Well, the next couple of verses also straighten out some things about just how the menorah is to be attended. For instance, the last few words of verse 2, take a look at your Bibles, are typically translated as to cause the lamps to burn continually. Some versions will say to cause the lamps to burn always or forever. Now, that causes a problem because the very next verse, verse 3, says that the lamps are to burn from morning to evening, or rather evening to morning, right? which is quite different than always. What gives? The Hebrew word that's been typically translated into continually or always is tamid. And tamid is used as an adjective or an adverb, as it is here. It does not mean continually. It does not mean always. It means regularly. In our case, in this context, the word daily would probably be a good translation. Therefore, the verse should read, to cause the lamps to burn daily. Look now at verse 3. It says the lamp shall burn from evening to morning, and then rather oddly, 
Many translations appear to add the word continually. That is, most Bibles say from evening to morning before the Lord continually, which frankly doesn't make a lot of sense. I've even read commentaries saying that the menorah burned night and day because the Bible says it was supposed to burn continually. Wrong. And of course, that's done to make it match with the translation for the previous verse. Again, the Hebrew word is tamid, which means regularly, not continually. So the problem is rather easily resolved. And by the way, the verse actually reads, from evening to morning before Yehovah regularly. That's your best translation. As one would imagine, the menorah only burned during the hours of darkness. And what a great symbolism there is in that. The Messiah, represented by the menorah, the golden lampstand, was consumed on earth for a specific purpose. He was to be fuel to put light into a dark place. The world. When he comes back to rule, though, he's not going to be fuel that's consumed. He's going to be king that rules over a place of light, not darkness. Now, as we're told in Revelation, there's going to be no sun and no moon eventually. No need for lamps. Because God is going to be our light. The way physical light is produced in our universe is by something being consumed as a fuel. In our universe... Light results from the conversion of matter to energy. Whether it's olive oil, wood, petroleum, gasoline, hydrogen, some chemical, right, it fuels the stars, including our sun. While Yeshua was here physically, the only way he could produce light is by his being consumed. Folks, that's the only way we can be produced. We can produce light. We have to be consumed. Our lives have to be used. They have to be used up, consumed for him if we're going to produce light. A conversion of matter to energy has to occur. We have to do something. We can be a container full of pure olive oil, one who holds Jesus in our hearts, but until the fire is lit, the oil's not consumed. Until we put action, energy, into what we have, no light emits. Knowledge of the truth, sitting around feeling warm and fuzzy and peaceful, does not produce light. We have to use up our time and our resources and our lives for him. Otherwise, we're just kidding ourselves. And we're just liable to be among those many who when the Lord returns and runs out to meet him, and we greet him with, Lord, Lord, and he says to us, I never knew you. Let me state clearly, though, that that is not our consumption for him that brings us salvation. Rather, our consumption 
is a result of our understanding of our salvation and allowing it to take its natural course in our lives and not blocking it. After instructions for the menorah, verses 5 through 9 deal with what is typically called the showbread. These are 12 very large loaves of bread. This is not an exaggeration in this picture. Um, this is leavened bread, by the way. And it sits on a table inside the holy place. And the bread is to be laid there in two rows. As we know the approximate dimensions of the table, about a little over two feet square, we know that the loaves had to be stacked, piled up on top of each other. Each loaf required about two and a quarter liters, around five pints, a little more than a gallon, or around a gallon rather, of semolina flour. Each loaf would have weighed around four pounds. Okay. Now, laying out bread or other food in a temple to the gods was very usual and customary in Middle Eastern society of that day, in Egypt too. But here, among the Hebrews, God makes it clear that this isn't food for him. This is food for the priests. Okay. The symbolism of the two rows or stacks of showbread coincided with the two large stones that were part of the priests, the high priests, ephod. Upon these two stones were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. Six names on each stone. But the fact that the twelve are divided into two groups and that there are two stones with the twelve names of Israel divided between the two of them tells me that that symbolism takes one more step. That in the near future, that is from the day of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, Israel would become divided into two parts, into two houses. Of course, neither Moses nor the Israelites would ever have guessed that such a thing was really not too far in the future for them. Now, verse 7 needs a little straightening out. Normally, the translations say that frankincense was to be placed upon the loaves of showbread. So the picture we get is that this fragrant and super expensive spice, frankincense, was to be sprinkled on top of each loaf. Frankincense is very fragrant, but how it tastes is quite another matter. In fact, the Hebrew preposition al, al, which is usually translated upon, therefore making the frankincense put upon the bread is incorrect. Al, al, does not mean upon, it means beside. It means next to, or it can mean together with. That kind of together. So what occurred was, that the frankincense was put into two incense burners beside the table of showbread and then burned as incense. Now, we only get a couple of off-handed references uh, to showbread as used in the temple in the New Testament. One of the more notable ones being when Jesus was defending the use of his healing power on the Sabbath. In Matthew 12, 1, 
says, At that time Jesus went on the Sabbath through the grain fields, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat them. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Behold, your disciples do what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did? When he became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered into the house of God, they ate the consecrated bread, the show bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. So this practice of displaying showbread in the temple and attesting that it was only meant for eating by the priest, Yeshua fully confirms here in the New Testament by admitting that David technically was breaking the law to go in and eat it. His point was that sages and rabbis had no problem with David helping himself to that showbread. It was understood that when life and well-being came into play, that sometimes had to be weighed against the strictest interpretation of the law. Yeshua was employing that well-known rabbinic method of debate called Kal Vomer, okay, the weighing of light versus heavy. So he is basically saying that if they had no problems with David feeding his hungry men using sacred bread, why should they have a problem with Jesus feeding his hungry disciples on a sacred Sabbath? The showbread was replaced once per week for each new Shabbat with the priest getting what was removed. Now, verse 10 starts to deal with the law against blasphemy. And some other serious crimes. Now, I've noted on a number of occasions that it was a mixed multitude that came up with Israel out of Egypt. And here we're given an example. It says, of an Israelite woman who had married an Egyptian man and thereby produced this mixed son. Now, we can assume that there were thousands upon thousands of families, of some type of mix similar to this one that followed Israel out of Egypt. Okay. The point is made that this half-Israelite, the son of this Israelite woman and Egyptian man, got into a fight with a full-blooded Israelite, and in the heat of battle, this half-Egyptian pronounced the name, that is, the shame. S-H-E-M, of God, which was Yehovah. And he said it in blasphemy. In modern day language, he said a swear word. He used God's name in vain. Okay. Exodus 22 cites the law concerning the careless use of God's name. Exodus 27. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Here we see the punishment for that act. Death. Now the context of this whole affair is sort of like the presenting of a case before a judge. And that is a fairly detailed example of a crime is given and then it carries through until the penalty is described. Now it's interesting that it is made clear that this man came from, at least his mother's tribe was, the tribe of Dan. 
Now, Dan would, not too long after entering the Promised Land, kind of pull away from the other tribes of Israel and form a cult. The, The city of Dan in northern Israel became the center of this this cult that they created. They built a temple up there and an altar, and they practiced all sorts of abominable pagan rituals. You can go visit that place, as a matter of fact, to this very day. So Dan would gain a reputation as the bad boys among Israel. And we'll find a number of cases where it is specifically mentioned that so-and-so from the tribe of Dan did something wrong and then the punishment's prescribed. And thus Dan was often used as kind of an object lesson. Now I mentioned earlier that we find some hidden references to the Messiah in this chapter. Now I've demonstrated one and, and here we find another but we really only see it when we examine the Hebrew. Now in verse 11, where it states the son of the Israelite woman pronounced or better blasphemed, depending on your Bible version, the name of God, the Hebrew word used there is Nahab. N-A-Q-A-B. Nahab. Now early in our lesson, we saw that the olives from which the holy olive oil was extracted to fuel the menorah, could not be crushed and pressed. It had to be beaten. Here we find the Hebrew word nachab as used to describe the nature of this capital crime of taking God's name in vain. Literally, nachab means to pierce. And it is usually translated to blaspheme. So, Nahab means pierce, as it is in the sense of causing a piercing wound, causing harm. We find then that in cursing, by using God's name, the half-Israelite, half-Egyptian man had pierced, literally pierced, God's name. Just as we found earlier that the olives used to provide fuel for the enlightenment of the world had to be beaten. If there are two dramatic characteristics often used in the New Testament to describe Christ's passion, they have to be beaten and pierced. Indeed, Moses did speak much of the Messiah, just as Jesus said he did. And we could see it much clearer if only we would examine the Torah with all of its Jewishness restored rather than to declare its supposed faultiness and irrelevance in our day. Well, verse 14 then tells us that this blasphemer was to be taken outside the camp and executed. Now, we've discussed this term outside the camp before. It means literally away from where the Israelites had erected their tents. Part of the reason for taking a condemned person outside the camp was to avoid the ritual uncleanness brought about by the presence of something that guy was about to become, a corpse. But even more, 
It was both commanded and traditional to only allow an execution outside of the camp. Now, we're not going to get into it right now, but the fact that Jesus had to be executed outside the camp by Jewish law and that we're told in Hebrews that indeed he was executed outside the camp kind of gives us a clue to where he probably was was crucified. And further, that almost certainly the traditional places that most Christian pilgrims to Jerusalem visit as the site of Calvary could not have been it. Because those sites would all have been well inside the camp boundaries of the city of Jerusalem in those days. Now verse 14 tells us that the criminal was to be stoned to death by the whole community. See, stoning was symbolic of the rejection of this person and his deeds by the community as a whole. It acknowledges that they see his behavior as sinful and against God. The laying on of hands before he was stoned is interesting. It does not mean, as it's often portrayed, that the citizens of Israel grabbed him and roughed him up all right, on the way to his stoning. Rather, it symbolizes a very similar act as a worshiper who brings an animal to the priest for sacrifice and then lays his hands on the head of the sacrificial animal. When an animal is to be sacrificed by means of the worshiper laying his hands on the head of the animal, the ownership and authority over this animal is transferred to God. The worshiper is also, in a certain way, transferring his own sins, his own guilt, from himself to the animal whose blood would be shed as a substitutionary atonement for the worshiper. We're told that a specific group of people is to be the ones who lay their hands on this criminal, those who heard him speak the blasphemy. Now, many would have watched this physical altercation going on, but many more would have heard the man shout out his blasphemy. By Bible standards, one that hears is at least as good a witness as one who sees. And I think this is a very important biblical principle. By the community of witnesses collectively laying their hands on the criminal, they were pronouncing that they were in agreement on the judgment against him. And that his blood was on his own head. Now this notion of his blood was on his own head carried a little different meaning than what, what Gentiles typically think. When we hear those words, ah, his blood's on his own head. We usually think of it as meaning, well, it was your fault, you knew better than to do it, you did it, now you're getting what's coming to you. That's kind of the sense of it. Okay? That's not what the Hebrews' thought process was. Follow me on this, because this is another interesting piece to the puzzle that is the ancient Hebrew society that forms the context for the Holy Scriptures. When an animal was to be sacrificed, 
The guilt of the worshiper was symbolically transferred to that animal by the worshiper laying his hands on the head of the animal. When the animal's blood was shed, when it was ritually killed, then the worshiper's sins were atoned for because the animal's life was a legal substitute for the worshiper's life. Okay. That is, the worshiper, by God's justice, should have rightfully experienced death as the wages for his sin. He should have paid for his sin with his own blood. Instead, an innocent animal died a death of substitution in the worshiper's place. And this was not only acceptable to God, the system was established by God. See, this is the entire basis of God's justice system. It's the entire basis for Messiah's death on the cross. If we say, as too many in the church say, that with the birth of Christ the law was done away with, and since the sacrificial system based on atonement and substitution was the center of the law, then Jesus' death as a substitutionary atonement for us would have no context. It would have no meaning. Why did he die if it wasn't for this purpose? Okay. By the executioners laying their hands on the criminal, it was an indication that no substitution would be forthcoming for him. That the guilt of the criminal was his own and he couldn't get rid of it. He couldn't transfer it to a sacrificial animal. Rather, as the final act of his existence, the criminal will have to die for his own sins. Further, it was the Hebrew belief that by being executed, in some way the criminal paid the price for his sins by his own blood, and therefore, in some way, his sins were atoned for. Now, exactly what this amounted to is not clear. Okay. Since life after death was a very fuzzy concept for the Old Testament Israelites, and since there was no concept at all of dying and going to heaven until Yeshua came, or around that era at the very least, it's hard to know if the idea in their minds was that the criminal was actually forgiven for his trespasses because his own blood was shed, or just exactly what? Okay. If they thought it meant he was forgiven, they were wrong. Because being executed was not an act that led to forgiveness. It was an act that led to his permanent separation from God's community of believers. Okay. After the example of this particular criminal, this blasphemer is given, Jehovah says... And this is what will happen to anyone who is part of Israel, citizen or foreigner. Anyone who blasphemes God's name will be stoned. Or more literally, anyone who pierces God's name will be stoned. Note, please, just how serious it is to use God's name improperly. Also note that in the New Testament, we get the spiritual counterpart to the physical earthly act of blaspheming. Luke 12.10 And everyone who will speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him. 
See, in Leviticus, there was neither earthly forgiveness nor substitutionary atonement available for the person who blasphemed the name of God. He loses his earthly life. He is executed. In Luke, there is no forgiveness nor substitutionary atonement available, that is, one may not depend on the blood of Christ, for the one who blasphemes the Holy Spirit. In modern times, he may not be executed by a court of law nor lose his physical life, but he does lose his eternal life. Do you want to know what blaspheming is? Because I've heard sermons on this over and over. Then read Leviticus. The New Testament expects you to already know what it is. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is to misrepresent Him. It's to speak against Him. Or it's to use His name or characteristics improperly. It's to dirty His reputation. That's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. To claim that the Holy Spirit has instructed you to do something when you know full well or simply being careless with your words that he hasn't is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. To renounce the deity of Yeshua is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit of God because trust in Messiah is the prerequisite to receiving the Ruach. HaKodesh, the Spirit of God. Beside, one of the names of God is Ruah HaKodesh. Next in verse 17, the penalty for a murderer is reiterated and it is linked to the trespass of blasphemy by being the next thing discussed because death to the violator is also prescribed. But note again with our Hebrew word nachab, meaning to pierce, that what is being illustrated here is that there is no more violent of a crime that a man can commit spiritually against Jehovah than to blaspheme his holy name. Just as there is no more violent crime that a man can commit physically against another man than to murder him. In fact, by using the term pierce, nahab, the scripture is saying that blaspheming is essentially the spiritual equivalent of attempting to murder God. And I don't find any indication that the crime has been abolished for modern day believers. Note as well that this goes for foreigners as well as Israelites. <laughs> Now, beginning in verse 17, the subject changes. And we're told that unlike the standard practice of some cultures in the Middle East of that era, the Hebrews are not to take a human life in exchange for the life of an animal. In other words, no matter what the circumstance, the killing of someone's animal does not warrant the death penalty to the human criminal. Okay. What this verse is easing us into is what some scholars have called in Latin... Lex talionis, okay, the law of retaliation. Now, this is the area I was telling you about at the beginning that rabbis and sages and Christian scholars 
have really struggled with and have very sharp differences of opinion. And we find that a kind of retaliation, when done lawfully, is indeed considered God's justice in this chapter, and this principle is stated in verses 19 and 20. This is where we get this statement of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is where we get this this kind of idea of reciprocation. Yet it is a, a different kind of retaliation that was standard for that time, and then centuries later in the time of Rome, that operated on that principle of lex talionis. Let's camp here a little while since this is going to end the chapter anyway. Since time immemorial, many Hebrew sages have insisted that the intent of the words of verses 19 through 20 were not that if a man fractured another man's arm, that the perpetrator's arm should in turn be fractured. Nor that if a man knocked a tooth out of another man's head, that the one who did it should have his own tooth knocked out. And their position certainly seems to have been validated by none other than Yeshua of Nazareth. Rather, this was call a call for proportional punishment, that the punishment should not be greater than the crime. In fact, there is no evidence that even if God had intended that the same physical damage that was done by an assailant should be done back to him that the Hebrews ever at any time regularly practiced. They didn't do it. Now, might some, of, might some have done this out of a fit of rage or done it vigilante style? I have no doubt it occurred. Okay. Rather, particularly as concerned harm to animals and often as concerned men, Compensation was the preferred method of retaliation. Mutilation as a punishment was abnormal in the Hebrew system. Yet apparently it did happen from time to time. In fact, in Deuteronomy 25, we find a specific case of a requirement for a woman to have her hand removed for grabbing the genitals of a man who was fighting with her husband. Another case that appears in the Talmud, I read this very interesting discussion about whether a criminal should have his eye plucked out for his crime. And the argument about this certain case centered on the fact that this criminal was already missing one eye. So to take his other eye would have rendered him blind. And the resulting total blindness would have been a terribly inequitable punishment for the crime he had committed. Now we're going to find a few other discussions in the Bible and dozens in various Jewish documents on this very difficult subject. No doubt some of the debates and discussions among the sages were hypothetical, but mostly they were real cases. But with the rarest exception... Monetary compensation of some kind was preferred invariably over physical punishment. And physical mutilation was regarded with disgust. Now, in the end, the sages and the rabbis and most Christian scholars could agree on one point. That equality was the issue in our case in verse 24. Meaning not 
just the issue of the crime versus the equitable penalty, but also that the nationality of the criminal must not be cause for a lesser or more punishment. Over and over in the Torah, as here in verse 22, it is stated that whether Israelite or foreigner, there shall be one law for everybody. Kinds of, kind of shoots holes, doesn't it? All right, And a rather common doctrine that there's one set of rules for the Jews and another set of rules for the Gentiles. But there should also be left no doubt that God demands an equitable price to be paid for criminal activity. Our modern sensibilities, particularly in the West, are somewhat offended when we're told that long jail terms, capital punishment, even heavy fines, are retribution, it's not justice. But in fact, it's pretty hard to argue otherwise. We just don't like the sound of that word, retribution. Retribution basically means tit for tat. It's just that retribution outside of the enshrined godly justice system is vigilantism. While retribution inside of it, that is when it's properly conducted and applied, is equitable justice. And that certainly seems to be the Lord's viewpoint as expressed literally in the scriptures. Nowhere, even in the New Testament, is it said that a price is not to be paid by the criminal for his acts. But the definition of what is a criminal act and the price that's to be paid for it is set according to the principles behind the laws and ordinances set down by God in the Torah. Not to be applied willy-nilly, nor without the governing tribal or national authority behind that decision. That'll do it. We'll get into chapter 25 next week.